Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. Today, we have a reoccurring guest, Marcel Plichta, Plichta, depending on who you ask. Um, and I think you guys have know already what Marcel's background is. Marcel is at the moment uh, doing his PhD at uh, St. Andrews. And he has a background in the U.S. intelligence community. So we're going to talk about a couple of things and uh, it's going to be a short one, guys. So bear with and Marcel, thank you for joining. Yeah, good to be back. So nice you had me on twice. Yeah, I mean, uh, we talk a lot, so I think we have a, we have interesting conversations. So it would be uh, good to go into a, a couple of things, current affairs, things that we've been we've been speaking about. I think I would like to start on the, the, the online discourse, the ocean discourse on the the rockets uh, or the missiles and missiles in Poland. I know you don't want to talk about it, but I'm going to make you. <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, I mean, okay. So, so just, just for background, right on the 15th, there was a big, there was a big Russian cruise missile attack on, on Ukraine. And basically the, the immediate, the immediate thing that emerged from that, right. Was that a, is that a missile hit Poland and killed two people. And there was, and there was a lot of drama about whose missile it was, whether it was deliberate or not. I think this is, I haven't been on Twitter for that long. So I think this is the first, like kind of crisis like this where I was viewing it on Twitter instead of, um, you know, like BBC or just, you know, just ignoring it if it's not in my, um, my area of, of, of interest. And yeah, man, it was just a lot of like a lot of people not understanding different kinds of missiles, a lot of different weapons ID people disagreeing with each other. And then sort of the news picking that up, the, the traditional news outlets picking that up and spinning that out of control. And in the meantime, obviously Poland and, and NATO and all those countries were themselves getting together and getting their forensics people together. So there was, there was narratives on Twitter ranging from like, you know, we're going to war to like, this is, this is a non-issue to like, I think I saw, I think I saw one person saying that it was a, a corn, a corn explosion, like an agricultural accident. Uh, and it was really, <laughs> it really exemplified like not, not necessarily disinformation. Cause I don't think, I don't think any of these people were trying to lie. But I think there, there's definitely like a culture on Twitter on like, if you're not the first to say something, you, you've missed the boat and you missed being like that first guy to do something or girl. And I think, I think that really spiraled the whole thing out of control, basically. And, and you sort of, you had people who didn't really know the technical aspects, you know, commenting uh, both of, both of like the missiles themselves and uh, how the North Atlantic Treaty works. You had like a lot of people discovering that, that there are in fact articles to the NATO treaty other than article five. And then you had people going, oh. Article four, article four exists. And, you know, it just went on from there and it was just like, yeah, it was just kind of messy. It was just kind of messy. And it, it was definitely a, um, a clouded information environment that, you know, eventually resolved itself to be not what most people thought it was, where it was a, a Ukrainian interceptor, almost certainly a Ukrainian interceptor that, that landed and went off course. I think I saw, but maybe I'm wrong in this, but I saw at the latest that, uh, Ukrainians were denied. It was uh, an intercept. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I, you know, they have, you know, and, and I mean, I mean, I don't know, right? Like, I'm not a weapons ID person, and I and I definitely wasn't. I'd love to have been, you know, on the radar station in Poland, like watching this, but but you know, it's not clear to me to me what happened. But yeah, I mean, it it would, it's beneficial to to Ukraine to to message a certain way, right? You know, uh, and that's something they've been doing throughout the war, not necessarily like 
misrepresenting things, right? But they have they have uh, you know their their sort of agenda and and, and you know their messaging that they want to get out. And I think uh, I think this is part of it, right? Yeah, I mean the the information space is so congested and it's so fast that you know it's like uh, a race to the bottom. I think you you mentioned that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I don't know if you it was you or somebody on Twitter who said. Imagine if, if Twitter was around during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Um, yeah, that was that. Yeah, that was the defense editor for the Economist that said that, which was he made, which is a very good point. Mm-hmm. So I was, yeah, I found that very interesting. How at the moment, you know, there's so much going on, and the thing also is like there is this like culture of wanting to like dunk on each other, right? Wanting to like one this one up one up. It doesn't really do anybody any favor. And yeah, I wish, the, I wish there was a little bit more cohesion and, and, and less chaotic, who's the ultimate quote unquote OSINT account. I mean, I've kicked OSINT more than online OSINT more than enough. So I don't think I, I need to go further into that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, one other thing I will say, and this is, this is a, a very, I guess it's not really a defense of, of Twitter's approach to information, but, you know, I will say as someone who worked in like current intelligence for, for a bit, right? Like often, often you don't know what just happened, right? Like you'll be, you'll be going to a senior policymaker and you'll be like, well, there's, there's rumors and, you know, this fits a pattern, but, you know, tomorrow we'll have a way better sense of what happened, right? Like all we have right now is either, you know, a a news report or or a tweet or, or a video or something like that. And policymakers still want to know that, even if they know that, like, probably tomorrow, like, it, the scope or, or scale of something won't necessarily be, or the threat won't be as, as big as sort of it's initially made out to be. So it's it's a problem that that isn't just, you know, isn't just Twitter and isn't just young young people on Twitter uh, shooting their mouths off. It's a it's a you know it's a much bigger problem, I think, and highlights the importance of good uh, intelligence training. Uh, there you go. That's a nice little segue there. Now, I think, I think also that, uh, the anonymity gives a certain layer of, you know, what's the worst that can happen. You know what I mean? It won't have, it won't have impact on you, your reputation, like personally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think for me, I, I, I agree with that, but I think, I think the biggest issue is lack of a transparency in like methodology. You know what I mean? Like, like it, to me, I mean. Ultimately, like, I don't know, you know, most people on Twitter personally, but if, but if the method by which you reached an assessment is like a sort of a transparent process and you're sort of explaining where your sources are and you're, and you're sort of critical and you're, you're self-reflective, you know, I think, I think that's like, I think that's what you should be trying to do. It's what most of Twitter tries very hard not to do, but that's, that's sort of, that's sort of, you know, if, 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 uh, if you want to be like professionalized, right. And you want to be sort of taken seriously, even if you're an anonymous account, it, it really is like that, the the methodology and sort of the value add, right? Well, I think that's really well said. I wished that uh, people doing this, that they, uh, I don't know this, but I wish that there wasn't a emphasis on speed, right? Who's first. And if the goal is being first, then, you know, you're a monitor, right? And you're not a, uh, you're not a, uh, or a journalist, you know, that, that, that has his sources, but, but even then there is more rigor to it. 
the problem then becomes obviously like bigger outlets taking, picking it up, you know, and then and, and, and rebroadcasting it. But I think what you said there on intelligence training, I, I hope there is an openness. I think because I know a good number of, of the, of the bigger accounts personally, and I think definitely there is a, there's a level of respect on what intelligence analysts do. I think on the other hand, a lot of the OSIM community is not happy with professional, I don't mean that in a derogatory manner to OSIM people that they're not professional, I'm talking about government analysts. Uh, or in the private sector, um, that they take their work and do not credit them, right? That there is, there is a, there's a tension going on there. So I think they're open to, to get more educated about the craft and not just, you know, intelligence as a product, but intelligence as, you know, the process of intelligence and, and who does it. And I hope that with the course that that, that we are almost finished with implementing an hour, which is an online course. First off, I think we, we, we agreed upon doing more of a, a, a foundational level of intelligence that people that haven't really engaged with these terms and, and with these uh, concepts can dip their toes as it were, and get a, a, a more grounded understanding before they can follow more intensive courses, which have a, has a heavy emphasis on, on applied intelligence and, and techniques and not only how we think about intelligence and the epistemological side of, uh, of the craft, but also what are, and that as we at Great Dynamic, that's one of our heavy emphasis on our internship that we do with, with a lot of young analysts is the production, right? Like how do you present your finding? But I think we as like say quote unquote traditional analysts have opportunity here to also learn from the guys that have carved out their own niches online, right? That and and how they communicate. And and I think particularly on the on the on the production slash dissemination side of intelligence and briefing, what are people doing on Twitter, what are people doing on Instagram, even TikTok or YouTube? Uh Maybe TikTok is not the best example, but there are really good accounts doing it. I think they could teach us a lot too. And, and I think uh, we have implemented techniques and, and procedures that we at Great Dynamics do, which are not traditionally considered intelligence writing, but are more marketing or copywriting. So I think there is, yeah, there's good opportunities to, to help each other and to make the, the profession to to lift the profession to a higher level. And even though I give them a hard time from time to time, I, I do respect them enormously. And, and I think obviously the ones that I know also personally, because I know what's behind it and why they do what they do, but it's hard for me to understand what the motivations and as you said, you know, what the rigor of their analysis is and, and how do they select sources and, uh, and how do they decide on reliability and validity of their sourcing? So, yeah. And I think, I think for those, I, I, I cannot have an opinion because I don't know. So I hope that our course is gonna, is gonna help a lot of people to channel that. And for people that are already in the craft, maybe learn a thing or two from the guys online and, and how to, how to use their techniques and. I think particularly in the, in the side of geospatial intelligence, I think the ocean community has, 
has done an incredible job. I think there's people around that can look at a picture and can tell you within an hour where that picture was taken, which is crazy. So I think there's a lot to learn from from each other. I think we we, we hope just to channel that. Yeah. Sorry, I went I went on a rant a little <laughs> bit there. Yeah. I, well, it's 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 one of those things where like there's there's incredible like enthusiasm from the community. And taking that enthusiasm and adding some structure to it, some scaffolding, let's, you know, it, you can still be enthusiastic and interested in these, in these topics, but you'll work a lot more efficiently and you'll produce, you know, if you're, if you're doing analysis, cause a lot of people are, are not technically they're, they're on either different and they're different at a different stage in the intelligence cycle, right? They're either, you know, collecting something or, but if, but if you're an analyst, it definitely improves like the quality of your assessments, improves the quality of like of questioning yourself, of auditing yourself, of uh, those those core critical thinking skills that that really take you from like you know an account that that shares something and maybe adds a comment to an account that's really you know adding significant value to to what's what other people are seeing on Twitter, or what's on the news, or or uh, people are saying. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think that's very true, and uh, you know, hopefully, we can uh, we can do a good job at that to 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 further grow uh, and professionalize the industry. I look a lot at what the OSINT community is doing because we we work alongside a lot of people. We have our leg in, in both spheres, in the more traditional side, the work that we do offline and, and the work that we do online. And, and I have had a lot of people that are doing their work online on the podcast because I'm, I'm massively invested in, in, in how they do what they do and uh, how we can help each other, basically. My, 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 Next point that I wanted to get to, that I wanted to ask you about. I know, if I'm not mistaken, you did a briefing not so long ago for, I think, either a unit about Wagner and... Yeah, yeah, the, the Royal Scots Dragoons, who, yeah. are, who, are now, who are now partially in Mali and now uh, <laughs> maybe not, maybe not in... Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you, because obviously the pullout was announced of the British forces. So what is your opinion on that and uh, at large, what's going on in the Sahel, which is more dangerous than ever now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't really have structured, structured thoughts on this. I mean, I have seen, I have seen a lot of British military people sort of the, the, the UK deployment in Mali is called the L, the LRRG, the long, the long range reconnaissance group. And, uh, the, the unit I briefed was, was going to sort of take over for the next, for the next deployment there. A lot of people were saying that they didn't necessarily see the purpose of the deployment. I'm not sure. And, and that's from, you know, UK military people. So not just like random Twitter users, right? But I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. You know, I mean, essentially the function was as part of the UN mission in Mali, they were, they were going much farther afield than other units were or making contact with, you know, areas, areas that um, the UN, you know, in, it hadn't really been to before. They hadn't been to in a while. You know, if they if they encountered any evidence of uh, of crimes or breakings of ceasefires, right? They document that evidence. And, you know, I kind of see where where some people were coming from in terms of uh, the part of their job was also to verify the ceasefire between the government and, and rebel groups. So I do I do sort of I do see the 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 comedy in you know seeing a group of a group of armed guys who aren't officially affiliated with the government and stopping them and saying, okay, you just have rifles. You know, you don't have a you know, you don't have a, a recoilless, you know, a recoilless rifle, right? You don't have a, you don't have a, you don't have a heavy weapon or, or anything or a crew served weapon. So you're fine, you know, continue on your way, good sir. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally it's a symptom of the deterioration in Mali, right? You had, 
You had, I think the Germans announced they were pulling out. You had the Malayan government stopping, I think, Ivory Coast peacekeepers. I think there was a there was like a situation where they were they were holding you know they were holding yeah. them up. well if from, from extrajudicially although the, the the you know the Malayan leaders would say it was it was judicially and so so you have a real in addition to you know Mali's sort of contentious relationship with the French you have an increasingly antagonistic relationship with the UN uh, you have sort of the you know JNIM, which is and 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 other terrorist groups which are you know growing and growing and. And, uh, you know, you, there's no sign that, 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 that they're halting. There's rumors now that Wagner might be leaving. I haven't really, I haven't really substantiated that. So, so take that with a grain of salt. And as far as I can tell, the only new actor coming in is like the Ugandans who have, uh, who have volunteered to come in and help train the, the Malayan military, which is, I mean, you know, we'll see, we'll see how that goes, but yeah, things are not looking good in Mali and, and by extension, because the Malayan government can't necessarily get a grip on this issue and, and borders are sort of fluid, you know, it's leading to, um, you know, fighters being able to access, you know, countries that, that border Mali fairly easily, right? You're Burkina Faso and, and Benin and, and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I don't really have an overall assessment, but not good, right? No, definitely not. I was speaking with somebody about this not so long ago, I think a couple of days ago about how, according to the numbers, if you guys are interested in in the Sahel and you want to know more about what's going on, first of all, check out our articles on Great Dynamics, but uh, for really interesting takes and, and in-depth analysis, have a look at Mena Street. They do amazing work. But what, from what I've seen is that the this year already, already, the year's not even over yet. It's, all, it's already deadliest year or recorded year in Mali. Secondly, there's more people dying at the hands of at the hands of the Malian government than on terrorist groups. So that's definitely a huge problem and something to worry about. And uh, I think obviously the, the role of Wagner is going to be very difficult because Wagner has, has had some, some losses, particularly towards, uh, in the battles against JLIM and how they're going to figure that one out. I don't know, but uh, it's not looking good for them. And if they are going to be recalled to Ukraine, well, best of luck to them. And I say that very sarcastically, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I think, I think ACLED, the, um, the, the incident tracker company, they, uh, they recorded like a 300% increase in civilian deaths at the hands of security forces, or it was, or, or maybe 300% increase in civilian deaths overall since uh, France left in and Wagner arrived. Not that France was you know, doing amazing. Uh, and yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's not good. I mean, with, you know, a thousand, a thousand mercenaries sounds like a lot, right? But, you know, Mali, Mali is a very big country and, you know, a thousand, a thousand guys very quickly would be, you know, swallowed by the, the vastness of, of, of that country. And Janem, Janem know the territory better. They probably have better intelligence about what's going on. You know, they've been, they've been fighting, you know, for a long time now. So it's, it's really, it's not surprising that Wagner's running into challenges. And then you have the, simultaneously, you had the news a few weeks ago that any new Wagner recruit um, was not eligible to, to go to Africa overall. So including, you know, Central African Republic and, and anywhere else. So there's a, there's a real, there's a real drain. Most of Wagner's, you know, bandwidth is focused on Ukraine right now. So, you know, it's not, it's definitely not good news for the Malayan government and definitely not good news for, you know, civilians in Mali. Well, I think it also depends on how you look at it because 
Wagner is patrolling with the Malayan government, so who knows what their role is in uh, civilian deaths. I've, I've heard some things, but they were told to me in, in, uh, in confidence. I won't go into that too deep, simply because it's not being, it's not being talked about openly and I don't want to compromise any sources. But... I, mean, I mean, in terms of, in terms of what I know, I mean, usually, usually they do these joint patrols, right? And there's sort of, there's sort of rumors yeah. that on an, on an individual basis, the, uh, the Malayan, Malayan soldiers and officers are, are really not necessarily that enamored with Wagner and Wagner's behavior and sort of, you know, that, that it, it, I'm not, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I definitely wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Wagner was a little bit arrogant in their approach. And I could see, I could see Malayan soldiers sort of taking umbrage with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it would make sense, obviously, but uh, I, I haven't heard, I do know that particularly on combined patrols, that they've been ambushed a good number of times by JNIM forces. The last one that I spoke with Mena Stream about is there was one incident whereby JNIM put in a, planted an IED where Wagner was traveling with, with Malian soldiers. And one Wagner guy was on a bike and he drove over the IED and basically, you know, got shredded. And it was so panicky that they left body parts behind while they were running away. Uh, so it's obviously like JNIM, well, they, they, they uh, see that as a, as a huge victory. So they will echo that. Yeah. And, uh... and I mean, you know, usually, usually the reprisal to that is, is not, is not particularly discriminate, right? You know, you have a reprisal attack against, you know, sort of a town or, you know, when, when JNIM comes into a town or any armed groups comes into a town, the civilians of that town are not going to like, they're not going to throw them out, right? JNIM and, and armed groups are the ones with all the guns. So sort of rolling into that town and, and treating everyone in there who's like they're a collaborator is, uh, you know, not only, not only is that um, not the right way to get a JNIM, but it's also a great way to recruit for JNIM, right? Because if people feel that, you know, if people feel that alternative actors other than the government are more trustworthy or more likely to take up sort of their interest, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, not the best coin strategy, I would say. I wanted to say that, what you just said there, because if you want to, if, if you know anything about coin strategy, Counter insurgency uh, for the people that don't know, but uh, is popular support, right? If you take away popular support of any armed group, their chance of survival diminishes very, very quickly. So if you enhance popular support for, for these groups, then obviously you're doing, you know, yourself a huge, uh, creating a huge problem for yourself, basically. So Wagner aside, I mean, the, we, we've talked pretty much every episode of, of this podcast. I think we've touched the whole art from different angles. Yeah. I would like to go into your research, uh, your publications on UAVs, loitering munitions in Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, I think privately we talked about what L3 Harris's vampire system potentially a cheap solution, what they could do. Now we've seen, I think a Czech build technical with ZSU, I think, uh, uh, cannons on the back. I think somebody, I read somewhere they called it a, uh, technical. It's funny. So you, you're seeing like interesting solutions, but from a threat point of view and what Iran is doing and from a defense perspective, you know, you know, what's your opinion? Yeah. 
it's it is it is funny to me because I was I was working on you know Arabian Peninsula stuff and, and and Yemen stuff for the government and and sort of the the situation there where you know Iran is you know sending drones to and supplying uh, Houthi rebels to attack Saudi Arabia. That was sort of a in in the broader in the broader sort of media environment and on Twitter and stuff like that. It was like the war in the war in Yemen generally is just such a minor out of the way issue. And it was really funny to see, maybe not funny, kind of horrifying, to see you know Iran Iran supplying drones to to Russia to do sort of a not not quite the same kind of thing, but it, but sort of a similar idea, right? Of of sort of a cheap long range strike option, and then suddenly people are like Iran has drones, you know how how many they have? All, why do they have so many drones? And it's it's sort of you know for especially for especially for Yemenis, you know we're on, we're on Twitter like you know what the hell. We, you know, we've been, we've been dealing with this for a really long time, but it's, you know, the, the, the one, I, I say one way attack drones instead of loitering munitions because everyone has to have their own, you know, special phrase. And there's sort of a, it's not clear to me that they actually are loitering, right? If I, if I walk, if I walk in a straight line from like here to a store, no one would accuse me of loitering unless they were, you know, out to get me or something. Or kamikaze draw. Or kamikaze, or kamikaze drone. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, there was, there was some, there was some controversy about, about that as well. And I, and that's sort of a mea, mea culpa. Cause that, I think the first time, I think the first time I wrote about this for Daily Beast, I used the phrase kamikaze drone because it really like evokes, evokes what it does in a way that is obvious to a general audience. But it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, it's, I'm trying to, I'm trying to move past that. But, but it, but it presents a dilemma, right? For Ukraine, because, because essentially, I mean, essentially the way a lot of them operate is like a really cheap cruise missile. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, you, you program, you know, you program a point into it and you just, you know, let it go and it delivers, you know, 20, 30, 40 kilograms of, of explosives, which is, you know, small for a missile, but if it's, you know, $20,000 each, right. Or $30,000 each, you can very quickly scale that. And so, so sort of the dilemma Ukraine faces is, you know, defending, defending against all of them and, and defending against them inexpensively, right? Because because the more the more expensive, the more capable systems are the most expensive ones. Right. And there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion right now about, you know, should the US send like Patriot missiles to to Ukraine and stuff like that. And and this is something, you know, Saudi Arabia has Patriot missiles and they've been using them to down Iranian drones for a long time. But, you know, each of those missiles is, you know, in the millions, you know, for a twenty thousand dollar drone. So there's so there's the cost issue. And then there's the sustainability issue, right? Of like even if you can afford to to pay because it's you know it's worth it if a twenty thousand dollar drone does you know two hundred million dollars of damage to a to a power plant like obviously in a million a million dollar missile is worth it because you prevented you know you prevented you know that amount of damage but there's also like the number of missiles you have to consider right so I think when the Germans when the Germans sent the their Iris T their uh, air defense system to Ukraine I think the initial shipment was something like forty eight missiles. You know, and, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure <laughs> maybe, maybe I misheard that, or maybe there's, you know, there's probably definitely more on the way, but it's, it's one of those things where today's attack, today's attack, or yeah, this morning's attack, the 17th, there was like, I think, I think, you know, reports were saying 50 missiles, you know, on the 15th, they were saying a hundred, a hundred cruise missiles were coming in or, or 90 cruise missiles and 10 drones and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, there's the cost issue and then there's the scale issue and, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's. You know, it's tricky. The, the sort of plus side, I guess, is that, you know, Russia seems to be very bad at dynamically targeting things. So it's less a less an issue for the front, uh, Iranian drones, and, and more an issue for 
sort of things that can't very easily be moved, like uh, government buildings or, and, or power plants and stuff like that. So yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. I mean, obviously in the beginning of the podcast, we talked about what's going, what happened in, uh, with the, with the Polish situation. I think this is not probably not going to be the last time that a missile goes awry. Uh, hopefully, you know, there's no more loss of life in that. But yeah. I wonder. And it's a bigger risk as they start targeting like Laval and like other places that are like closer to the border. Cause like Kiev is, is pretty central. So it's, it's, it would be sort of unlikely that an interceptor would, would land in another country from there. Right. Outside of the, the Patriot missiles, do you, do you, do you see any other potential sub, not solutions, but mitigation? Mm -hmm. I think it's more, I think it's more about layering. So it's, it's not that, it's not that any of these are like a silver bullet. It's that, it's that ideally sort of you want, you want to be able to detect, you know, the threat as early as you can. And, you know, I, I know, I presume that Ukraine is getting some kind of external help with that just based on, you know, the external help that's been given to them so far. And that way you can really triage it and you can hopefully sort of have, have your most expensive, your most, you know, capable air defense systems targeting, you know, the missiles. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe have cheaper systems targeting the drones or, or try and get a sense of, you know, what, what areas the drones might be targeting and putting those cheaper, lower range systems, like, like the L3 vampire, right? In addition to being useful at the front, right? Where it'll shoot down, you know, ISR drones and, and DJI Mavics and your, your like cheap, you know, quadcopters. If you, if you know the, if you know the avenue of approach, right? Where, where drones are getting launched from, or if you know, you know, where that'll be put, you can put that, or you can put a... You know, you can put one of the the flak panzer Gepards there, or you can put, you know, some or a manpad or, or some of those smaller, sort of lower range system and intercept them a lot more cheaply. But I mean, ultimately, this is just going to be a threat until the war ends. There's no real, you know, short of short of figuring out where they're storing every single missile and every single drone and hitting those targets. They're, you know, for for Ukraine winning the war is what's going to stop attacks on Kiev. Not necessarily more more air defense or more sophisticated air defense than they already have. Although they should they should get that and NATO should provide it. But it's it's sort of this is just going to be a continuing threat, especially especially if Iran continues providing them and in the numbers that they're providing them. If they continue sending like hundreds at a time and they start they start sending their uh, range ballistic missiles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, I look at what's happening now in Ukraine. Obviously, you know it's to the prospect of, of millions of households going to the winter without electricity or, or, or heating. Well, that's obviously this horrible prospect and the loss of life that that would entail on the civilian population could potentially be immeasurable. You know, I, I think what you said there on layering, very important. What do you, what do you think of, of the use of UAVs while we attack UAVs? I know you talked about this from from the Ukrainian side. So uh, Ukraine has been using one-way attack UAVs sort of, I think. They haven't, they, the government hasn't officially said like, yes, we did this. I think there's sort of a, you know, a, a messaging and a, and a political reason behind that. But I mean, as early as, as early as I think June, there was, there were one-way attack UAVs hitting Russian oil facilities and, and several, several attacks on, in Crimea with these. Uh, we don't really know, we don't really know a ton of about them. I mean, the, you know, there are videos of them. So people have tried to do visual IDs and they've, you know, they've suggested that they're, you know, purchased from like AliExpress, you know, and modified. If, if that's the case, then, then I think scale is the issue. You know, the, the benefit, the benefit to a, 
a cheap system like this is mass, right? You you sort of uh, either overwhelm or you or you or you either overwhelm air defenses or you go from so many different angles that you know maybe one isn't covered to to strike the target. If if they can't really get if they can't really get that mass, then then it'll be harder for them to to do what Russia is doing. But that said, if they do get it up and running, I mean Russia <laughs> Russia I think. You know, has a lot of the same vulnerabilities as Ukraine, right? They would have to defend a, a very wide area from drones like this, and they would have to be worried about what kinds of targets might be hit, right? You know, military depots that that are outside of that are outside of Ukraine's conventional range, um, airfields, uh, oil installations. You know, that's that's a classic one because if you have a um, even a small explosive hitting a hitting an oil facility, can potentially be you know a big problem. So so you know. If Ukraine got if Ukraine got it working, you know Russia would face a lot of the same issues and and sort of in spades because a lot of their air defenses are are as you would expect focused on the front. And so if they suddenly have to move a lot of air defense back to protect the rear, that could that could cause problems for them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously that makes a lot of sense, and I think uh, potentially if they do attack more of the oil infrastructure, that would yeah, that would obviously deal a heavy heavy blow to the Russian economy. I don't know how much other actors are waiting to lose their access to Russian oil. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a layer of complexity there. But, you know, I, I said before the podcast, you know, we wanted to do a quick, short one. And uh, I wanted to ask you, is there any, like, final thoughts, things that you were thinking about? I don't know. A lot of people are talking about the the Sevastopol attack, how that's sort of noteworthy. And and that was sort of a that was a combination of of one way attack UAVs and um, USVs unmanned surface vessel surface vessels or uncrewed surface vessels and that's that's actually a pretty that's actually a pretty interesting attack from a, a you know from a it, it in a sense in a sense it's it's more significant than the Moskva for than the than the sinking of the Moskva from like a from like a military technology perspective because we already we already know that um, you know anti ship missiles are are quite good at hitting ships. But this was an example of of two different kinds of unmanned systems uh, trying, I, I think, trying to do an attack on the Russian Navy together. And we don't really know what the scope of the damage was, but we do know from uh, from thanks to Covert Shores, thanks to H.I. Sutton, uh, that that it has <laughs> that it has sort of impacted shout Russia's, out to him. Russia's up. Shout out, yeah, shout out to Covert Shores. If you like Navy stuff, you should be following him. But but it, but it, essentially, essentially, it's had an effect on their operations, and it's had and it's forced them to. Like patrols that were done by FSB, like their uh, the armed armed police are now being done by the Russian Navy and stuff like that. So it's really it's really affected their operations, even if it didn't necessarily do, you know, as much damage as, as maybe the Ukrainians wanted. So it's 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 sort of a noteworthy a noteworthy military technology uh, and military strategy sort of development in that sense. But I think that's 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 really I think that's the last thing I had to say. Unless you want to talk about uh, reality TV. Oh, well, we can we can go into that if you want to. I know you 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 wanted to talk about the uh, prime minister show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is actually this is this is related, right? Because it it speaks to like the importance of having like some kind of some kind of training in like either intelligence analysis or critical thinking or like world affairs generally. Because I was watching I was watching I was watching a show in the UK called Make Me Prime Minister, which is basically it's basically just. It's basically just the apprentice, right? You have teams of people competing to impress the judges. But the idea is that it's it's politics, and they're they're competing to be prime ministers, and they're judged by uh, you know uh, political you know MPs and and political sort of strategy and communications people. 
but um, most of the show sucks. It's pretty boring. But episode <laughs> episode three is is pretty interesting because they do something different where they do it. They do a crisis simulation. They do a you know they they had the entire episode is is like you're you know you're in the situation room or or you are the prime minister and you're dealing with a with a big crisis. Um, and just like the the lack of awareness and sort of the the like laziness both on the parts of like the contestants who are like I mean they're not the brightest but they're but they're you know they're they're aware of other kinds of policies and other things that governments do in terms of foreign affairs is just is just like uh, pretty embarrassing like they it starts with like uh, it starts with like oh there's there's protests and they split them in, into teams and they're like oh there's protests what do you do and one side's like gun them down. And the other, and the other, and the other sides like pass out water, you know, and then, and then they get into like, they, then they introduce like a completely separate crisis. So I guess it's a crisis simulation where like a nuclear submarine goes missing off the French coast. And like the French don't know that the nuclear submarines there because the submarines were the, for some reason, a British nuclear submarine was secretly tracking like French fishermen. Cause that's what Britain's nuclear, you know, submarines do, I guess is, is track fishermen <laughs> and <laughs> And one team is like, one team's like, you know, we need to tell the French that like, this is our fault. You know, it's like a mea culpa. And the other team's like, no, lie to the French and, and don't tell them that we have a submarine in their waters and send in like, you know, uh, the SAS or whatever to, to like swim around with like scuba masks and find our, find our missing submarine. And, th and that wasn't even the most ridiculous one because the next thing that happens is like, there's a massive cyber attack across Britain. And it's like a it's like a disaster movie version of a cyber attack. It's like not realistic at all. It's like airplanes dropping out of the sky and like there's no there's like there's like no electricity and stuff. No electricity anywhere in the country and and simultaneously like there's riots in 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 across the country. And and they're like, "Oh, GCHQ has found out that the the entire cyber attack is coming from a server in Oman." And <laughs> which is like it, which is it's, it's, it's being routed through a node in Oman. So they haven't found whoever's doing the cyber attack. They've just found the way that they're conducting the, like, you know, apparently they're doing it all from one server. And they're like, okay, guys, do you want to send in the Royal Marines to go there and, like, shoot up the place and get the server in this foreign country? Or do we want to send a Tomahawk missile and just blow it up? And those are the two options. Like, those are the two options presented. And, like, this is never brought up, but like Oman is Oman and the UK have pretty friendly relations. Like I think they would just like if you just asked them, they would probably turn off the server. Yeah. <laughs> like not only that, not only that, but they really they really it was a real cop out because they were like, oh, the server, you know, the server there's no there's no people around the server. It's just a server sitting in an empty building. And you're like, well, I mean, okay, you've taken any consequence out of it, right? And they were like, oh, yeah, the missile strike's an act of war, but, the, but sending in, like, the Royal Marines is not an act of war. And you're like, well, no. It was, like, like the, entire thing, the entire thing was a train wreck from start to finish. And, 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 like, I think you and I probably could have come up with a better scenario in, like, an afternoon. Like, they obviously, like, half-assed the entire thing. Like, all the footage used wasn't even of the right, like, systems. You know, like, when the Royal Marines show up, they use, like, U.S. Army training footage. And, like, when the, the Tomahawk missile launches, it's a submarine launched ballistic missile instead of a tomahawk and like all kinds of silly stuff and it really does emphasize like the importance of having some awareness of how of how like international politics happens of how of how governments sort of respond to threats and thinking critically about you know if you're if you're in a position where you're making decisions thinking critically about what you can do what you have and sort of 
thinking beyond <laughs> to incredibly crazy choices. But yeah, no, I had I had a really fun time watching it. If you're if you're in the UK, you can watch it for free on I think it's Channel Five. If you're not in the UK, I I, I don't know. I wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> I'll say that. Well, that's a, I mean, so that's not gonna go on our recommendations list then. I mean, you know, recommended for like you know hate watching, I suppose. <laughs> All right, fair enough. It is interesting. But then again, you know, there, there's many things that we see on that that they do obviously for, for dramatic effect and that would maybe not make uh, maybe good TV or like I remember watching Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy with my uh, my brother. And he was like, oh, it's so slow and boring, but I loved it. Uh, so, you know, so it depends. Yeah. yeah. John, John Le Carre books are like, they're all like 800 pages long and I find them interesting, but I can see how, uh, you know, especially, yeah. especially Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I haven't read, but it's, um, I know it's, I know it's on, uh, it's on the more intricate side of, of his mm -hmm. novels. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really, the, the book is good and, and the movie is also good. I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it won an Oscar. But same for, I think the movie with Tom Hanks called Bridge of Lies. Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies, yeah. Uh, That's a good one. I same. like that one. Yeah, same. I like that one too. My brother thought it was very boring. That's low, I guess. You know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it starts. It starts with the plane getting shot at. Yeah, like... I mean, it's to the eyes of uh, to the beholder, right? So, but yeah. Marcel, thank you so much. I think we're gonna see you soon anyway. Uh, yeah. So this is not goodbye, but see you soon. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, got... a pleasure as always. Thank you, and yeah, guys, keep an eye out for our for intelligence course that we're working our way on and uh, we will let you guys know when that's uh, slated for release and i know a lot of people listen to the podcast that are interested in getting maybe into the field or already in it and want to know learn more about it so yeah keep your eyes and your ears open and see you guys next week again Marcel, thank you and uh, have a great day